So uh, in the past, I did a series uh, during Advent called Five Big or Five Important Words in the, the Nativity Narrative. And I talked about some of them this Advent season, uh, peace, Emmanuel, uh, worship would be another word. The word gospel uh, appears in the, in the account of the, the nativity. For the first time, we see the word gospel there and then the word joy. So uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about joy this morning. And uh, I want to talk about it because I think that um, after love, joy ought to be the most obvious thing when you encounter a Christian in everyday life. The most obvious. Um, and, and, and as I talk about it, I, uh, I'm mindful of probably how many times in my life on a daily basis, if not weekly and monthly, that my life is absent of joy. And so uh, this is not a, a, a moralization of it. It's, I've come to the conclusion that um, if I lack joy in my life, it's because in some way I have distanced myself or lost the meaning of uh, what it means for Jesus Christ to come to earth 2,000 years ago today on my behalf that the significance that he would do that kind of a thing for me and for you and what that caused in my life and the privilege and the, the blessing that comes from that. Uh, how not only he has rescued me from eternal separation, but he has rescued me from myself in this life. Uh, because left to my own devices, I am not good for myself. I need the guidance of God in my life to become more than what I am. Um, and I think that, I think, you know, I, I, to think of what I might have been or my, what I might have become apart from the presence of Christ in my life is a pretty sobering thought. And maybe some of you, can still remember what you were like before you came to Christ and it wasn't pleasant. And then you did come to Christ and your life, the trajectory of your life changed dramatically and you're joyful because of that rescue that's taken place uh, because of how God has saved you from that. So then as, a, as an overarching kind of attribute in all of our lives, joy is important, but making it work in an everyday kind of way is a real challenge, right? So I remember years ago, and this was during Easter, and we had our first child, Jeremiah. Let me see, Jeremiah was born in uh, August, so this would have been the following Easter, so he would have been about eight or nine months old. And uh, my wife played with baby dolls until she was like 12 or 14 years of age. So now that she had a real baby doll, you can imagine how she'd love to dress him up and, you know, get all these clothes and just outfit him and, you know, coordinate all this stuff. And, you know, I'm like, just get the kid dressed. Let's go, you know. But, 
Uh, but that, oh no, no, she, she, and then, uh, and then of course back then too, uh, people were just far more prone to dress more formally during an Easter service. So she had, you know, her best Sunday dress on and all that kind of thing. And so I always had to go to the church, be at the church before her. And so she put Jeremiah in his Sunday best, the, the outfit that she picked out that she just couldn't wait for everybody to see because there is this subtle competition among women with their babies, you know what I'm saying? So there is that kind of a thing. But anyway, so she, she put him in the car seat, and she's driving down uh, Route 33 into Lancaster, Ohio, and she hears him, she hears him go, ah, ah, like this. And he's in the back seat. She's in the front seat. Um, and so she's looking in the mirror trying to see what's going on back there, and uh, she... Uh, so she, she pulls off the, on the berm of the road, and she's in a hurry because she's a little late for church, and she wants to get there. And she runs around behind the car and neglects to see this puddle that she steps in with her, like, sandal shoes or whatever, you know. So she's making a way she steps in that, and then she goes around. I'm laughing. I know I shouldn't be, but it's just, you know, it's the stuff that, that uh, comedies are made of. So... Um, so she opens the door, and she leans in to say, what's, what's the matter, honey? And he projectile vomits <laughs> all over her face, her hair, her dress, down his wonderful, beautiful little suit, you know? And, uh, and uh, so, suffice to say, the joy that she was feeling earlier that morning had dissipated completely. <laughs> <laughs> she was half blinded. She couldn't see. So she had to go around the car like this so she could get something to wipe out her eyes and all that kind of stuff in the driver's seat. She didn't come to church. Uh, and I'm, I'm at church, and i like, where is she? I know she was real excited to be there, and she wasn't there, and so I was a little worried, and, and that was probably pre-cell phone era. I think it was. So you couldn't call or anything. So um, I went home, and <laughs> it was a gruesome sight when I walked in that, because you know she just wanted to get out of those vomit-strewn, uh, you know, clothes and all that kind of stuff. And she was in bed, and uh, you know, no joy, um, you know, discouragement. Joy can be elusive because life has a way of sneaking up on you with certain things, and you, you know. So when I talk about joy, then. I think joy really is something that ought to be, as a matter of principle, a dominant part of every Christian's life. But there are those times that come that, you know, it's sort of like Ecclesiastes. There's a time for, right? A time to weep, a time to cry, a time to all that kind of stuff. And so, um, and so there's a difference between uh, understanding that there are moments when joy is not appropriate outwardly. But as a whole, joy ought to be something that ought to be a regular part, very obvious in the life of the believer. And when that joy isn't there, it's because uh, we've lost our rootedness, our connectedness of who Jesus is in our life and what he has done and what he is doing in our life. I think the, 
I think the, the deeper you get into your faith, the more that you, you begin to see, but, but, but for the grace of God, there go I. And you also see more and more things that you were spared that you had no idea that you were being spared from. And that joy is the appropriate response, that you were spared from those things. That even in, you know, we spent some time in Ephesians chapter 6 about spiritual warfare. The war that rages on around us that we do not see. That God in his common grace spares us from. That if Satan had full sway over how he wanted to rule in this world, the horror that would be visited upon us. But in his common grace, he spares us. And the appropriate response ought to be joy. So going back to this passage in Luke 2, verses 10 through 11, you have these shepherds. And I've mentioned this before in the past. But it is interesting that the angels appeared first to the shepherds. Now, most shepherds did not own their own sheep. They were employed by wealthy people, usually, oftentimes, Pharisees. So, because when you were a shepherd, you were always ceremonially unclean. You could never participate in the sacrifices in the temple because you either had blood on you or you had manure on you or something like that. So it, uh, it kept you from being able to participate. So the Pharisees who wanted to participate, but they also wanted sheep because there was money to be made. So they would get these sheep and then they would subcontract the care of those sheep out to shepherds. Now, because the shepherds did the kind of work that they did, um, and because they were always ceremonially unclean, in the social strata of Palestine at the time, they were among, they were considered to be among the lowest of the low. So they were avoided, not, not unlike the tax collectors, not unlike the prostitutes. They were coarse, they were rough, they were unrefined, they were dirty. I worked on a sheep farm for years, and I'm just saying to you, among other things, that when God calls us his sheep, it's not a compliment. They are the stupidest animals you could ever work with. They might be cute, but they're stupid. There are all kinds of ways in which they will self-harm, get themselves into trouble, all of those kinds of things, just like us. And when you work with shepherd with sheep, you you get dirty. And so it's it, it just you know as I'm reading that, it just reminded me of so much of all the years that I worked on, on a sheep on a sheep farm. And but the oddity is that God sent his heavenly host, he sent Gabriel first, and then he sent this heavenly host to these people that the rest of the world basically rejected. 
and wanted nothing to do with other than what they could do for them. So that's really the first thing that you need to take note of. And, and, and that would be, the, that would be the, the dominant thought that was running through the shepherds' minds themselves. Like, why would you do this? Like, there, there, there's the king, there are the aristocrats, there are, uh, there are other more faithful people than us. Why would you, God, send Gabriel, the archangel, to us to make this announcement? And then why would you send these angels to us when we're out in, out in the fields? There's this stingent darkness. You can't see your hand in front of your, ha- your face. See, I think symbolically there's something there as well. That here are these shepherds who, in many respects, represent who we are in the way that other people saw them. Dirty, coarse, in comparison to God. Ceremonially unclean living in darkness. And God sends his angels to make this announcement about his son and that the beginning, the official beginning of the redemption of humankind was was starting that night. And he made that announcement to those shepherds. So, if God has sent his angels to say someone who socially was a bit higher up on the ladder and maybe it maybe even genuinely more devoted who had it together spiritually in a better way those people would have said well this makes a little more sense that the angel the angel the archangel gabriel would come to us and that the heavenly host would be sent to us because you know we have a, a little more together than those shepherds over there it makes it makes a bit more sense But that's not what he did. In a certain sense, he went to the worst of the worst, socially speaking. Because even they were not outside of the grace and the plan of what God had for humanity by sending his son, Jesus Christ. Does this make sense to you all? So if there are people here, or you know people who who would say, Uh, I'm really kind of beyond the grace of God. That is not the message here in Luke. The very fact that he sent the angels first to the shepherds is a message that no one is beyond the grace and the salvation of God. When I would talk to my eldest brother, Bill, years ago, He fought in Vietnam two tours. He was an army ranger. He was a professional killer. He had to do some awful things, some things that he later, and even then I'm sure during the time, robbed him of his humanity, robbed him of his dignity, things that he regretted and wondered about. And so years later, as I'm at his house talking to him in his living room and we're talking, he's starting to go to church on his own and we talk about that and I talk to him about the gospel 
And his initial response for quite a while was that because of what he did in Vietnam, he could not be forgiven for. And then I, I said to him, look, I know this is a mystery, and in some ways it may not even seem to be just to you, but you cannot out-sin God's grace. If you could out-sin God's grace, you would be bigger and more powerful than God. You can't do it. So a year or two later, after he started coming to our church for a while, and he was driving all the way up from Washington, PA, actually from Claysville, PA, every Sunday, I led him to Christ in my office across the street there. Came to faith in Christ. Finally believed. Now this is sort of a rabbit trail, but God in his mercy and in his grace I'll just go ahead and tell you the story, but it, it demonstrates, I mean, it demonstrates how the extra steps that God takes to assure us of his love and his care, regardless of what we have done in our life. Some of you know this story, but I'm going to tell it anyway, because I think many of you do not know this story. So this is a true story. So when he started attending here, we continued to have conversation. He said to me, you know, he said, I have some personal effects from uh, the war in Vietnam that I took from some dead Vietnamese soldiers. He said, we were going through the jungle. We were being fired upon, me and this other guy. We hit the ground, we were screaming. We thought bullets were ripping through our knapsacks. We thought we were gonna die. He said, but miraculously, we lived. And, um, and so uh, he said, after a while, we put our head up, and we saw this older man and this younger man coming down out of the jungle, down a path, and they went into a bunker, a clay bunker. And he said, we went into uh, that bunker. Uh, we, we crept up on the bunker, and they were in there, and we threw hand grenades in, and we, we killed those guys. So we went through their stuff. We found some orders to bring some artillery down from North Vietnam, Vietnam and some other things and some wedding rings and papers and letters and stuff. And we, we, uh, we took those with us. He said, but I still have those things and I want to give them back to the families. He said, well, just call the Vietnamese consulate. They probably can contact these families and I'm sure they'd be thrilled to have them. So he did. And he got in contact with a group of people uh, family members of the, the men, the two men that were killed. Over time, he began to email a bunch of them back and forth, and after a while, he fell in love with this one woman who uh, was a family member. And uh, that, that relationship continued till finally he went over to Vietnam to meet with her, and she took him up to North Vietnam, Vietnam, where her family lived. And he wanted to ask that family for their permission to marry her. The woman that he married was the daughter of the older man that he killed and the sister of the younger man that he killed. 
Now, in psychology, we call this like a catharsis. A catharsis is to engage in a behavior that brings redemption to one person's life, and as it does, or health to another person's life, and as it does, it brings health to you. And so what my brother discovered, what was settled in his heart that had never been settled until he, until he married Kim, was that he could be forgiven for what he did in Vietnam. Because if this woman could love him, does this make sense to you all? And she could forgive him of being the primary antagonist that robbed her of her father and brother. This is a 60-minute story. Then he could forgive him. And the joy that entered into his life because of how God arranged those things in his life, it's pretty remarkable that he was able to move from despair to joy through those unique set of circumstances. That's how God works. So I want to say then, going back to this text, that if there's anybody here who believes that they are outside of God's plan, his salvation for them, you are not. And if you come to recognize that, our hearts should be filled with joy because the life that you and I live now is just, it's just a nanosecond in comparison to eternity itself. And to be in the presence of God for all of eternity just by what we do here in this, just this, this minuscule of amount of time by recognizing what Christ has done for us on the cross after he came to earth 2,000 years ago, and that by trusting in what he did, by confessing our sin, by acknowledging his sacrifice, that he was a, sacrifice, a sacrificial substitution for us. In other words, we couldn't rescue ourselves. We had to be rescued. And by taking this just that moment to rescue, to, to recognize that in our life, and then and then through the power of the Holy Spirit to live our life in the light of Christ for the rest of our lives to the best of our ability and his, that is what is necessary for us to enjoy eternity in heaven with him, to be restored in every way as we should have been in the first place. Now, depending on what translation you read, the word love appears... I think this is the new standard, new English standard version. The word love appears about 355 times in the whole Bible, the word love. And I think all of us here would say that if it's any word that we would think would dominate the whole of the Bible would be the word love. But interestingly, the word joy appears over 150 times, which says to me, that this, this element of joy, this attribute, this practice of joy in the life of the believer is, is and ought to be a pretty dominant theme. 
Now, it is interesting, isn't it, that when you watch pop culture, for example, how they portray Christians in movies, sitcoms, films, and, and, and things like that, we are never portrayed as joyful people. Or if we are portrayed as joyful people, it is a, it is a, it's sort of like a, um, a characterization. In other words, they'll show a Christian who is joyful in all of the wrong circumstances. But why is it that the world misses that in us so much? When we, of all people, have every reason in the world to have our hearts and our minds filled with joy. You've been rescued. I've been rescued. I couldn't save myself. There wasn't anything that I could do. There is this reality of what happens to us in the, in the life to come. I mean, for example, when we talk about the fall of humankind that we read about in Genesis chapter 3, this is what, this is, what is described, that we are enemies of God. We are alienated from him by our sin. That because of the fall, there's been this loss of shalom, that life has been disintegrated disintegrated between man and God. The relationship apart between us and God does not exist as it should unless something happens. So there is a disintegration between us and God. There is a disintegration be with, between ourselves, between humanity. We don't get along with each other very well. We constantly fight and bicker. The hate that we are capable of expressing toward one another is just can be breathtaking. And I know I've cited this recently, but if you, if you listen or read to what happened to some of the Israelites in Israel, what people did while being gleeful, gleeful as they did it, and if you want to know what some of those atrocities are, I will not tell you here, but I am telling you that some of those atrocities are so horrible that, that I can't say them here. And when those atrocities were committed, it looked like they were joyful as they did it. It's unbelievable how we are disintegrated in our relationships with each other or can be, and within ourselves, the conflictedness, the disparity about how we are, the lack of wholeness in us, and within the created order as well. The curse is a result of the fall of humankind. The existence in darkness and fear, corruption, suffering and oppression, hopelessness, and the promise of God's wrath, eternal death, and punishment. All of this, all of this is off the table when we allow Jesus Christ to have sway over our life. 
we are no longer an enemy of God. We begin to enjoy and re-engage in shalom. The curse has been removed. And we, are be, and we are in the process of being made whole through Jesus Christ. So there should be joy, obvious joy, abundant joy, regular joy, because the gospel, beginning with the birth of Jesus Christ, promises to reverse the utterly disastrous effects of the fall of humankind. The God of the universe continues to love us, not despite our sin, but with us in our sin. I mean, you know, we do compartmentalize like that. Like, I love you, but I don't love this part of you. And because you have that part of you, I really can't love you like I should love you. Because... No, no, no. The love of God for us is whole and complete. It's unconditional, even though we are rife with sin and corruption. So God's love for us caused him to make provision for our rescue since we could not rescue ourselves. The price to be paid for our rescue was paid for by God, not by ourselves. So we're in this terrible shape, this terrible condition. We can't fix ourselves. We can't fix our condition. We can't rescue ourselves out of what we deserve. And so before any improvement happens on our part, God has determined how to fix us and rescue us. So there's no way to pay that back. We can only express what he's done for us in joy. So why there was joy among the angels and with the shepherds and with the wise men and Mary and Joseph was because of the remarkable provision God was making for the rescue of mankind. We read in Romans 5, 6 through 9, for example, which, by the way, is kind of a nice, sort of a, a temporary thumbnail sketch of, the, of Isaiah 53. I mean, this is the message of Isaiah 53 we find in Romans 5, 6 through 9. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this why we were, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him that is Christ? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through this life, his life? The angels knew all of this, and this was remarkable to them. So here they are in the presence of God for I don't know how long, basking in his goodness and his holiness, and it comes to them that, that the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, is going to tap his, he's going to tap his own shoulder and say, look, I'm going to go and rescue them. I'm going to go and become one of them. I'm going to be the one that pays the penalty for their sin because they can't. Now, can you imagine the conversation that must have caused among the angels? 
Not one of them would have blamed God for not doing that. It must have been stunning. And I'm guessing, I haven't interviewed any of them, so I don't know, but I am guessing that when they appeared to the shepherds and sang the way they sang, that much of the motivation why they sang the way they sang was because in the back of their mind, they were stunned. It was unbelievable that Jesus, the same Jesus that they've been hanging out with in heaven, was now an infant human here on earth to rescue people who wouldn't give God the time of day. So that was probably a lot of their joy, as it should be a lot of ours. Joy ought always to be a permanent and obvious distinction in the life of the Christian because Christ came to be the sacrificial, substitutionary atonement for our sins. It ought to be. But I think this to be a fair statement, that joy is the most important but least utilized of all the necessary Christian attributes and the fruit of the Spirit. I think that we set ourselves apart in this world of backbiting, of gossip, of uh, irritation, of competition, or whatever, whatever adjective you want to put in there. I think we set ourselves apart from the rest of the world, not only because we choose to love, but because joy flows out of us. And it just makes us look different. Joy, in many, respi- in many respects, is kind of uh, makes us look brighter against a very dark backdrop. Now, maybe some of you have bumped into people who are naturally joyful. They're just good at being joyful. And they're, they're joyful in, a, in an appropriate sort of way. You know, like if somebody dies, it's not like they're, you know, still joyful. And, uh, but... They, they know how to modulate all of that in a way that's appropriate. But regardless, when you encounter them on a regular basis, there's this almost like music that comes out of them. And you find that you want what they have. That you enjoy being around them. That it, There's a kind of peace associated with that. What would happen if just 10 or 20% of us in this room practiced joy authentically on a regular basis in this church and in our community? I, I think it would change the nature of how we do church. If that was a dominant expression an authentic, dominant expression. So joy ought to be no less a distinctive of the Christian than love itself. Now, unfortunately, joy is one of the easiest attributes of God to fake, but among the most difficult to do, and for a variety of reasons. 
And note this, that when we surrender our joy, we are usually being defeated by something we have made greater than Christ. When we surrender our joy, we are usually being we are usually being defeated by something we have made greater than Christ. So if we were joyful one day and we are not joyful the next day and somebody asks us, like, what happened? Uh, well, you know, uh, and, and we, we, we give them the cause for what? So there are some legitimate causes why we may have lost our joy, but there are some not so legitimate and probably mostly legitimate reasons about why we have lost our joy. Because somebody said something bad about us? I mean, really, in everyday affairs, so, you know, how many of us lose our joy when we get on the road and we start driving? And all of the idiots that are out there that should never have gotten a driver's license, right? I mean, that's, anybody ever think that before? Or when you show up at work, you're working hard, but you're, you get some coworkers that they want every advantage that the workplace has to offer, but they don't want to do anything that they should be doing when it comes to their job. So we're, all those things, all those different things can rob us of our joy. Look, much of the world remains gospel-resistant, even unnecessarily not redeemed because of the lack of of evident joy in the believer's life. It's one of the primary ways through which we evangelize. It's one of the primary ways in which you get, through which we get attention, appropriate attention from people to, to ask us, what's different about your life? Why can't I have that? Why is that so elusive to me? And it's because Christ is our portion. Jesus fills those gaps. He helps us not to be self-centered. Self-centered people are not joyful people. Self-obsessed people are not joyful people. People who are controlling are not joyful people. People who are entitled are not joyful people. You ever bump into that person, nothing is right unless everything's wrong? They're not happy unless they, see, they find something that's wrong. They are not happy people. And really, very few people want to be around them. <coughs> so joy, in many respects, is a flag. It's our flag by which people identify who we are. C.S. Lewis says this. He says that joy is the serious business of heaven. I love, when you think of joy, you think of, like, not serious, right? But it is serious. Joy is a very, very serious thing. And something that ought to be a regular part of the Christian's life. So I just want to, and I'm just going to conclude by saying to you that it's, there's no mistake, there's a very clear and definite message about why Gabriel and why the host of heavenly angels appeared before the shepherds. And that message amplifies itself out into us. 
that it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, Jesus Christ calls you to himself and wants you to be restored into right relationship with him. That because of his great love for us and the great sacrifice that he's made for us, because of what he saved us from and rescued us to, that anything that goes on in this life right now is, is irrelevant in, in the sense of what happens in eternity. The only thing that matters is how we engage eternity and how we allow that engagement of that eternity, that Christ in us, to lead us joyfully into the world to come. So ask, let's ask ourselves this, this question. If I were to say that 10 was the greatest, the highest number for what it meant to be joyful and one was the lowest, on the whole, what grade would I give myself? Am I a 10? Am I on it all the time joyfully? Am I a five? Am I kind of like a hit and miss kind of person? Like some days are good days, other days not so much. Or am I a one? I'm just a curmudgeon. You know, I'm like Eeyore. You know who Eeyore is, right? Uh, I mean, we have a lot of Christian Eeyores. I'm not calling you a donkey or a mule, I'm just saying. Okay, And I'm saying to you, pray and have God reveal to you uh, how you could be more joyful. So look, and it's, when you find yourself going into a place where you know it's going to be challenging socially or challenging in terms of work or whatever, gird your joyful loins. Say, I know those people are going to be there. There's going to be a curmudgeon there. Or I know those people with a critical spirit. By the way, I was going to talk about a critical spirit, and I don't have time, but I will say this. The archetype of the critical spirit is Satan himself. Satan had a critical spirit towards God. And so when you look up what, when, you, when, you, when you do the anatomy of what a critical spirit is, then you discover that if, if we are a critical spirit, then we take on the form of the Christian faith, but we deny its power. Just like Satan took on the form of what it meant to be a heavenly angel, but he denied the power of God. Does this make sense to you all? So the critical spirit in the life of the church is very dangerous. So, yeah. This is something I learned when I was kids were growing up. What year was this? Um, because I was a new believer. And uh, I was taken into Bible school and I was going to Bible studies and J-O-Y stands for Jesus first, others second, you last. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So 
That's good. Oh my. Yeah. When you when when we allow things to steal our joy, then we deny the power of God. We just do. And look, I know. I know most of you well. I know a lot and for most of you I know what things that are going on in your life and I know that some of you have some real challenges. But at the end of the day, who Christ is and what he's doing is far bigger than those things. And I'm not putting any of that lightly. Whatever's going on in your life is, is grieves the Lord. But, it, but if you can punch through that with a heart that's joyful to Christ and, and you, you seek him in that kind of a way, the joy of the Lord is our strength. So anyway, thank you, Bonnie, for sharing that. So let's not be falsely joyful, but let's really work hard as a, as, a, as a congregation and as a church family to allow joy, like love, to reign in our life because we have every reason in the world to be joyful. Every reason.